Well, good morning and uh, welcome, uh, welcome to people down in F3 as well as uh, online who are watching and glad you are here uh, with us uh, this morning uh, as well. Uh, the next two weeks, uh, I'm going to be out of town, but the next two weeks, uh, Dennis McNutt is going to be um, in the pulpit and, and uh, continue some things related to the law of Moses that he's studying on. Uh, you have to be kind to Dennis because uh, he broke his leg or his ankle or something here a few weeks ago. So he, I don't know, I mean, I, obviously he preaches with his mouth as not his foot, but uh, he's going to be up here, I think, in a wheelchair. So, um, um, but um, hey, that's the price of uh, being a youth a youth leader, I guess. Does the Christian life uh, work for you? I mean, does this thing called the Christian life really work? Uh, we've been studying the book of Romans, and uh, we are learning in the book of Romans that the moment we trust Christ as our Savior, uh, we get a new identity. We are uh, new creations in Christ. The moment we trust Christ, old things have passed away, all things have become new. We are identified with Jesus Christ. And in some mysterious way, when we transfer our trust off of ourselves and onto Christ for eternal salvation, in that moment of faith, uh, it's like our life is... He was raised. We were raised to newness of life that there is something totally different about who we are. That old sin nature is gone. We are not defined anymore by our sin nature. We are not these despicable sinners. We have a new nature. We are new creations in Christ. So when the Bible commands us to be anxious for nothing, that's really possible. When it, when it calls husbands to love your wife as Christ loved the church, that's really possible. That can be done. When it says, be at peace with all men, that can become a reality. That can happen. Um, but if all that is true, the question that keeps being raised in my mind, I hope in yours too, is, so why do I still sin? I mean, why do I still sometimes look like my unsaved pagan neighbor? In fact, sadly, why is it sometimes that my unsaved pagan neighbor looks even better than me? Why is it that sometimes totally rank atheists act better sometimes than pious so-called religious Christians? Why do I still sin? Why do I still have those old habits sometimes, those old ways of thinking? Let me read to you some comments by fellow Christians that maybe you can identify with. Someone once said, I am the subject of depression of spirit so fearful that I hope none of you ever gets to such extremes of wretchedness as I go to. Personally, I've often passed through this dark valley. You know who said that? It was a man by the name of Charles Haddon Spurgeon, a great 19th century Baptist preacher in England. Here's another Someone once said, for more than a week, I was close to the gates of death and hell. I trembled in all my members. Christ was wholly lost. I was shaken by desperation and blasphemy of God. That was spoken by the great reformer Martin Luther. 
Another great church reformer, John Knox, said this, Now after many battles I find nothing in me but vanity and corruption. For in quietness I am negligent, in trouble impatient, tending to desperation. Pride and ambition assault me on one part, trouble or covetousness and malice trouble me on the other. Briefly, O Lord, the affections of the flesh do almost suppress the operation of thy spirit. John Knox said that, another great reformer. Here's one more. You'll recognize these words probably. Someone once said, Sin produced in me coveting of every kind, for I am of flesh, sold into bondage to sin. For that which I'm doing, I don't understand, for I'm not practicing what I want to, or what I'd like to do. I'm doing the very thing I hate. Who said that? The Apostle Paul. The great Apostle Paul. Um, now, I, I want to give Paul a little bit of slack. Um, he, he did not have an easy life. I mean, here was a guy who was doing quite nicely in, as a young man in Judaism. I mean, he was advancing. He was uh, kind of being groomed for a, a top positions. I think he came from a wealthy family. Uh, I mean, he was kind of being looked upon as the pride of Judaism. Then all of a sudden, he had that Damascus Road experience, and he meets Jesus, and all of a sudden, everything changes. What was his life like after that? Well, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. I more so in far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, a night and day I've spent in the deep. This was not a fun life. I have been on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, Dangers from robbers and dangers from countrymen, dangers from Gentiles and dangers on the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers from false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights and hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And then apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me of the concerns for all the churches. Do you think Paul ever struggled with coveting? Like, you know, when he's traveling someplace and, and all of a sudden he stays in the home of some prominent person in some city and he sees all the nice stuff and the comfortable bed and the good food and, and he's just come from a shipwreck or been beaten and hunger and he's saying, geez, you know, I'd sure kind of like to, I'd give everything to, to serve you, Jesus, and, and I'm, I'm just always in a state of, nothingness. Do you think Paul ever struggled with kind of coveting and lusting after some things? This is what he said in Romans chapter 7 verse 8. Sin taking opportunity through the commandment produced in me coveting of every kind. Think of anything you could covet. He coveted it. Jeez, I'd like to have that. Why can't I do that? Why can't I be there? Why can't I own that? Why can't I have that? Does that really happen to born-again Christians? I mean, does that kind of stinking thinking ever happen to Christians? 
Well, what happened to the Apostle Paul? Now, we're in this section of the book of Romans that is focusing on how we are to live the Christian life, how it's possible to live the Christian life. In chapter 6 of Romans, we learn that these are truths that we have to affirm. Our death, burial, and resurrection with Jesus Christ, our identity with Christ. Chapter 6, we must affirm that to be true. We're on our way to chapter 8, things that we have to allow. That is the Holy Spirit to work in our life. The Holy Spirit to change us. The Holy Spirit to empower us to live that way. Chapter 6, we have to affirm, this is true. This is who I am. Chapter 8, this is what God can do in me. I'll allow the Holy Spirit to work in my life. In between the journey from chapter 6 to chapter 8 is chapter 7, and it's something we've got to admit. And that is the presence of sin. I, I still sin. I struggle within. And even though this old sinful nature of mine is gone, it's dead, buried, it's been put off, and I am totally new, that inner me raised up to newness of life in Christ. Even though I am new, the fact of the matter is, I still sin. And so do you. So take your Bibles this morning, let's Get back into Romans chapter 7, truths that we must admit. Romans chapter 7, verse 14. Paul is going to make three statements of admission. Three statements of admission. Romans chapter 7, here's the first one. Verse 14, for we know that the law is spiritual and I am of flesh sold into bondage to sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For I'm not practicing what I would like to do. But I'm doing the very thing I hate. And if I do the very thing I don't want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that it is good. And so now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. In this first admission, he makes an opening statement there in verse 14. We note that the law is spiritual, but I am a flesh. I'm sold into bondage to sin. I am sold into bondage to sin. There's something about me that, that is unspiritual. It is of the flesh. Paul is admitting here that he's enslaved. I thought Paul, as a new creation of Christ, you've been set free from the bondage of sin. What's going on here? He makes his statement. Are you sure you're reading yourself right, Paul? He makes the statement. Now he gives the proof, verse 15 and 16 again. Well, what I'm doing, I don't understand. I, I, I'm not practicing what I would want to do. I'm doing the very thing I hate. And if I do the very thing I don't want to do, I'm agreeing with the law, confessing that it is good. Paul is saying, yeah, look at my life. I get up in the morning, I, I, I start down this road, I'm uh, you know, I, I don't want to covet, I don't want to covet, I don't want to covet. You know, I'm going to put blinders on my eyes as I go through life. And, and when I see that, uh, that uh, good meal, I'm going to realize, oh, no, 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 I'm, I'm not going to covet. I'm going to co when I see that, uh, that man who's got his wife, and I'm, I don't have one, and I, I'm lonely, I'm, not, you know, I'm just going to, I'm going to make it happen. And then he says, the very thing I don't want to do, I end up doing. I hate this thing. And so what's his conclusion? Verse 17, 
he says this, so now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. <laughs> Come on, Paul. What are you, what are you doing here? Are you, are you shirking your personal responsibility? Look, I'm not the one doing it. But there's sin which is in me. And in that statement, Paul is acknowledging that this there, there's something within Paul that is called indwelling sin. There's something, it's like a foreign entity within him. It doesn't define who he really is at the core of his being. He's already established that. Chapter 6, what we must affirm. I'm a new creation in Christ. I'm identified with Jesus. I'm new. But there's something still operative within me. Sin is still in me somehow. And it can exercise a a dominating influence over my life. I'm not the one doing it, says Paul. Here's his second admission. Look at verse 18. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do. I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I'm doing the very thing I do not want, I'm no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. And so he repeats the statement. He, he makes his statement in the verse, first part of verse 18, for I know that nothing good dwells in me. And now here's his proof statement. Um, the willingness present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the, the good I want, I don't do. I practice the very evil that I do not want. There's the proof. There's the proof that there's nothing good that dwells in me that is in my flesh. What's his conclusion? Verse 20. I'm not doing it. I'm no longer the one doing it, but there's sin which dwells in me. Once again, is Paul shirking his responsibility? Of course, Paul, I just saw you do that. I just saw you raise your voice in anger. I just saw you look longingly at that food stand because you're hungry. (laughs) Paul's saying, that's not me. That's not what defines me at my core. There's something present within me. There's sin. Paul makes a third third admission. Look at verse 21, or uh, third admission. I find then the principle, evil is present in me the one who wants to do good. There's this statement of fact. I find there's this principle of evil within me. What's the proof? His proof statement, verse 22. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, verse 23, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. There's the proof. There's a war raging. I want to do what is right. In fact, Open me up, you know, let me bare my soul at the inner core of who I am. In my inner man, I joyfully, Lord, I don't want to do this. I don't want to think that. I I don't want to behave that way. You know my heart, Lord. I don't want that. But all of a sudden, it just, something, there's another principle. There's something like sin. There's something evil within me. 
that is being lived out through the, through the members of my body. I'm, I'm, I'm doing this stuff. I don't want that. What's his conclusion? Verse 24, wretched man that I am. Who will set me free from the body of this death? Wretched man that I am. It's as if Paul comes to the point of total exasperation, desperation. I am so sick and tired of this God. I am a wretch. Who will set me free from what? Me, myself, and I, the internal me? No, from this body of sin. Now, we've talked about this a number of, a number of times, and it's a, I think it's a difficult concept, kind of ethereal here to, to grasp. I don't fully understand it. But the moment we trust Christ, the real you, the real me, the internal me is forever changed, transformed, raised up to newness of life in Christ. I no longer have to do what I once did because I'm not the person I once was. I'm not defined as a, 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 man, I'm just a totally dirty, rotten, depraved sinner. No, I'm not. That is not what the scriptures teach. I am new. But I still sin. And there's something about this body of sin. There's something about this new me encased in this earth suit that, it, that draws me away from the heart of God. Paul had said in chapter 6, we need to present the members of our body as instruments of right, righteousness. Do not let sin reign in your where? Mortal bodies. That's where, the, that's where the, the, the warfare comes in. Paul was the one who wrote in chapter 6, verse 2, um, shall we continue to sin that grace may increase? No. I mean, perish the thought. And he said, how shall we who died to sin still live in it? Come on. He's like he's saying, come on, Christians. You've died to sin, so why are you still living in it? And then it comes to chapter 7. Oh, I'm in that category. I'll admit it, he said. The good I want to do, I don't do. I'm doing the very thing I hate. Paul is giving us kind of a, a, a snapshot. It's, it's more like a, a video of a segment of his life as a believer in Jesus Christ. And he's being very honest and very open. He said, but look, I, I understand. I, I can identify with your struggles because I struggle too. Because there is a principle of evil that still is within me. There is something in me. And I just, oh, wretched man that I am, as this spiritual struggle continues. Now let me mention five things this morning, sort of by way of application or the implications of what we've just read. Here's the first one. We need to acknowledge our flesh. Acknowledge your flesh. You see, every believer in Jesus Christ is going to struggle with sin because every believer in Jesus Christ, they'll have something that Paul calls, I'm sold into bondage in this flesh. It's indwelling sin. You see, there's an enemy in our spiritual selves that resides within us, and it's called the flesh. What is the flesh? It's that anti-God, self-reliant attitude, propensity, capacity, 
within every believer in Jesus Christ. That's the source of all our sin and all our resistance to the Holy Spirit in our life. After we get saved, we get that new nature, but we also still have the flesh and dwelling sin. There remains this capacity to still think, to feel, to behave like we were before we were saved. The capacity of evil that is within me. It's not who I truly am in my identity, but it's still there. It's a very clever enemy, it's very subtle, it's very deceptive. A formidable foe. 20 years ago, coming up here in February, the most um, egregious uh, and damaging FBI spy case uh, hit the scene. I think to this day, they still say it's the worst spy case in American history. Robert Hansen was his name. He was a FBI agent, but for 16 years was putting information over to Russia. For 16 years, he damaged our intelligence community until he was found. Oh, everybody thought, I mean, he lived a nice, quiet life in the suburbs and a family man, and he was well-liked and well-respected, and for 16 years, he was like that mole. He was that, that fake. He was the enemy within the gates. William Barclay, a commentator, writes, the flesh is the great enemy of the Christian life, the bridgehead through which sin invades the human personality. The flesh is like the enemy within the gates who opens the way to the enemy who's pressing in through the gates. It's the traitor that resides within our hearts. Now, it's not like a, some personal entity. It's not like some demonic force. It's like, it, it's like a magnet. It's not a, a personal force, but it's a, a presence of, of, of like a magnet that draws our heart away from all things of God. Romans 7 again, verse 21, it speaks of this principle of evil. And by the way, it's different for every one of us. Because you see that flesh, has been shaped by our upbringing. We all had different parents. All different life experiences, traumas that have happened. That third grade teacher who said you're not going to amount to anything, it's, it's, it's etched in our mind. Those memories, all of those things. Everybody's different. It all weaves together so that like a magnet, things can happen in our life that all of a sudden can draw our heart away. Someone harms me. It's the flesh that all of a sudden, like a magnet, draws me to, to protect myself or to, or to demean that person who just demeaned me, retaliate. Someone gets the glory other than me. It's the flesh that entices me to say, well, well they're really not that good. Let me, let me, let me tell you who they really are. I get depressed over something. It's the flesh that draws me to the, to the refrigerator door to open it up and feed my, myself with comfort food, to drink myself, to, to salve my hurting soul. Someone criticizes me. 
It's the flesh that says, well, I'm going to avoid that person at all costs. I fail at something. It's the flesh that, that draws me like a magnet to redouble my efforts. Boy, I'm never going to let that happen again. No one will ever see me do that again or fail again. And I'm going to try harder and harder no matter what it is, even if it kills me. I'm never going to fail again. I succeed at something. It's the flesh that draws me like a magnet to puff myself up and say, well, yeah, no one else could have done that. So there's a warfare that goes on. Because Paul is saying, as a believer in Jesus Christ, within me there's still a principle of evil. I don't want to do that, but I, I, I just did. I find then there is sin that is within me, the very one who wants to do God's will. And I hate it, says Paul, wretched man that I am. Folks, the conflict is real. We need to admit, every one of us has this propensity within us. Second of all, I think Paul is saying we've got to guard against law living. You see, the flesh, and he said this earlier in chapter 7, the flesh is energized by law. Now, the law is good. Commands of God. This is how we ought to live. They're holy. It's right. But there's something about coming under the dictates of God that actually incites this propensity within the members of her body to do just the opposite. Law living, being under law, is that mentality that we are all susceptible to that attempts to obey God, attempts to live right, but only in our own strength and power. That's law living. It's through the expenditure of human effort rather than the Holy Spirit's, and we'll get to that in chapter 8. The law demands, this is how we are to live, but it never empowers us to do it. And so we can put ourselves under the law and we can do it all the time. In fact, we can do it to others. You're in a discipleship situation. Good, that's wonderful. You're meeting with someone. And you're talking and, and someone shares, you know, I, I've got this, this issue and, and this, you know, I, I shouldn't act that way. But it, and, and so what do we do? Well, in a, in a right way, we say, well, here, here here's my suggestion. Um, Take a three-by-five card, and, and here's, a, here's a great, here are three verses, and I would encourage you to write down those verses. And every morning when you get up, pull those verses up and memorize those, just recite those. It's a wonderful thing what God's Word will do. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I will not sin against thee. And then I would also suggest spend 10 or maybe 15 minutes in prayer and uh, one, one more thing, when you find yourself in that situation, do what the Apostle Paul said, flee youthful lust. Just get out of there. All right, great. Okay, I've got the marching orders, and I'm going to do that. Tomorrow morning, get up, write the note, you know, put it in my, pull it out, I'm going to memorize that stuff, and all, I'm going to do this stuff, and I'm going to, oh, here it comes, and flee, and all of a sudden, doggone it, wretched man that I am, the very thing I didn't want to do, I did. Now, there's nothing wrong with running down verses of Scripture. 
There's nothing wrong with memorizing scripture, of, of spending 15 minutes in prayer before you leave for work in the morning. Spend an hour in prayer. That's good. There's nothing wrong that when, if you're anticipating you're going to be in a wrong situation to divert yourself and go a different way. There's nothing wrong with that. But what Paul is saying here, this is his personal, this is Holy Scripture. This is the Apostle Paul talking. And he said, the very thing I want to do, I don't do. Why? Because he's put himself under law. It's good law. It's wonderful stuff. But unwittingly, it contributes to the incitement of that indwelling sin. When we have a go-it-alone Christianity, a do-it-yourself Christianity, and we're trying to do all the right things to live the Christian life, but don't get to Romans 8 and appropriate the power source of God the Holy Spirit in our life, we are going to fail every time. Oh, we can make some efforts and we can survive some assaults of, of uh, temptation. We can grit our teeth and we can make it through. Do you want that kind of a Christian existence? Where we're just, I mean, is that what, is that what it's all about? I don't think so. Do you realize that in this passage, in Romans chapter 7, the personal pronouns of I, me, my are used 47 times? You see, Romans chapter 7 is a picture of a man trying to live the Christian life, trying to obey God, but doing it all in his own efforts and strength. I, 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 I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, by George, I, I, I. Guard against law living. Thirdly, don't excuse sin. Excusing sin is detrimental to our spiritual health. It leads, to, it leads to deadly consequences. Excusing sins converts the seriousness of sin to nothing more than like a, a shrug of the shoulder. Oh, well, you know, it just I was tired last night. I, I was, okay, I made a mistake. No big deal, right? Hey, we all, we all mess up, right? You, you just don't know who I'm married to. Good night. You don't, you, you don't know who I work with. I mean, if you worked with the person I worked with, you, you'd do some of the things I'm doing. Oh, I, look, okay, I, I've got Irish descent. I'm, I'm, I'm a little, I get a little angry, but you, so did my dad, so did my granddad. You know, that's just kind of the Irish in me. Or, or hey, I'm, you, don't, you don't know, I'm, I'm just kind of from, I've got Italian descent, so I, I just get kind of hot-blooded and, you know, that just, it just spills over on people. Oh, well, I'm not as bad as my dad was. Or I'm not as bad as that person. Okay, right, I was rude to that person the other day, but, man, if you would have known what I went through that day. Huh. Yeah, oh, yeah, I, I snapped at her, but... She pulled in front of me, the idiot. And just like that, we downgrade our offenses before a holy God into something that is light, meaningless. We excuse instead of owning it. Paul doesn't do that. It's sin. There's sin that dwells within me. There is a principle of evil, and what that was was evil. It was wrong. And we excuse it 
we end up believing the lie that the wages of sin is death applies to someone else but doesn't apply to me. There are deadly consequences to sin. So don't excuse it. A fourth thing, I think, in this passage. We need to be vigilant in troubled times. Vigilant in troubled times. I just read the other day, um, a couple days ago, you realize that the divorce rate has increased 34% from March to June this year over last year? 34% increase from March to June. You want to know why? Why do you think? The, the coronavirus. Troubled times. Potential lost jobs or at home, you know, the school, the kids, whatever. It's 34% divorce rate. Statistics also tell us this is known, been known for years. A family goes through some trauma, loss of a child or sickness of a child or something like that. The divorce rate jumps to the roof. Troubled times. Um, worries and cares of the world. That can, it can leave us vulnerable. It can open the door to that enemy within us the deceptive ploys of the flesh. Finances are tight, watch out. It's, it's an opportunity for the flesh to show up. Your teen is rebelling, watch it. The, the flesh is gonna rear its ugly head. Your wife is running late for the umpteenth time, <laughs> watch out, it's gonna cause trouble. You're gonna say things you shouldn't because it energizes the flesh, the pandemic, it's ruining your life, watch out. The election doesn't look like it might go well, watch out. Troubled times can energize the flesh. And, and troubles come in all shapes and sizes, right? From the cold sore on the mouth to the diagnosis of the, the tumor that's returned. A snub by a friend or a marriage that has absolutely gone sour. An overdrawn checkbook one week or a loss of a job and complete bankruptcy. Troubles come in all shapes and sizes and it becomes the fodder for which the flesh could get energized. Here's a fifth thing. And this is the most important. I think the th fifth thing that Paul is saying here is always, always, always look up. He said in verse 24, and he came to that point of desperation, wretched man that I am, who will set me free? Who will set me free from this, this body of death? And verse 25 says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Yep. So then, on the one hand, I myself with my mind, I'm serving the law of God. On the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. But there is a way out. Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. See, victory over the flesh is always through Jesus Christ. It's coming to a point, as Paul did, and that's why this is so instructive. This is so practical. Paul was just at the utter end of his rope. Oh, wretched man that I am. I'm so sick and tired of thinking those thoughts, of, of being tripped up by that 
whatever. I'm so sick and tired of, 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 of expressing, of always shooting my mouth off and this or that. I, oh, wretched, Lord, I'm tired of it. And Paul has come, as it were, almost to the end of himself. And what is he doing here in verse 25? He casts himself upon Jesus. Oh, thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ, my Lord. We always, always need to look up. Yes, we will always, always fail. And until this old body of sin is put off, and we get the new one. We will always struggle. There will always be this warfare. We'll always get tripped up somehow, sometime, some way. And it might be repetitive. But what Paul is saying is, Jesus Christ is our answer. And he'll develop that in chapter 8. We cast ourselves upon him, and we say as Paul once wrote, it's not I, but Christ that is within me. What does that look like? It means that when you have shot your mouth off in anger for the fourth time that day, or your eyes have looked at things on the computer that you should not have looked at, or, or when you had that, that thought of, of, of coveting something that you wished you had and you didn't, whatever the sin might be. It means that the Holy Spirit makes that, he convicts us of sin and you feel once again that, and you can slip into that damning, self-shaming mindset. Oh, wretched man that I am, look up and say, Lord, there's no way I can do this. And if I try and try and try, I'm not going to make it. And so, Father, will you somehow, somehow give me the victory? We go to Jesus. That's how we live the Christian life. It's moment by moment going to Jesus. It's having a conversation with the living God and saying, Lord, I cannot do this. You must do it in me. Talk to Jesus. Lay out the burden of your soul. Wretched man that I am. Ah, oh, I'm so tired of this. Who's going to set me free? Oh, God, thank you. <laughs> Jesus, 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 help me. And when we go to Jesus, you know what we get? His kindness and grace. Lord, I messed up again. I'm just confessing that to you. And he's faithful and, and just and he forgives us. And his blood constantly cleanses us. He loves us with an everlasting love. His kindness and grace, and he will move in our life, and he will give us and secure for us victory. Yes, I hope you don't, haven't heard today that you don't go and memorize, I'm not saying that. We go, let's go and memorize scripture. Let's go and have prayer time. Let's go and read, let's get in fellowship. Let's get uh, uh, in small groups. We have opportunities to sign up. Let's prioritize the body, a theme that we have. Let's do all those things. While we say, Jesus, 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 help me. I need you. Every hour I need you. Thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for what you can do and give me the victory 
in these things. That's how we live the Christian life. Let's pray. Father, grant us the grace to understand these things, to take a solid look at our own hearts, to be attentive to your Holy Spirit that convicts and but help us, Father, to accept the fact there is a presence of evil still within me. Not to ignore it, not to excuse it away. Not to put ourselves under law living. But to just go to you. And when we come to you, we come before your throne of grace, we always find mercy and help in time of need. Thank you. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.